As with every Buddhist class and Buddhist practice, we begin with refuge and motivation, bodhicitta. We take some time to get ourselves in the right headspace. Refuge in Buddhism is um, refuge is a sort of fundamental practice in Buddhism, and so it's worth coming back to over and over and over again. Um, we go for refuge to the three jewels, or the triple gem, as it's sometimes referred to, um, the Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha. We go for refuge to the Buddha in the outer form of the Buddha as the the teacher, the the um, the innovator, the discoverer, the um, the philosopher, the scientist, um, Gautama Buddha, the historical person who made this discovery of awakening, of enlightenment. Uh, it was a hard one accomplishment and um, he put a lot of effort and went to some extreme lengths in his experimentation um, he in his life he studied with the main philosophers and main philosophical schools that were available to him and uh, in in his pursuit of wisdom he found them he found each of the main schools of philosophy lacking and it was through his own innovation and and discovery that that this profound awakening, nirvana, um, or full enlightenment, bodhi, um, that he came across it. So we go for refuge to him as sort of the um, the discoverer, the progenitor of this lineage of the of these teachings of this methodology. And also as a, a kind of beacon of hope, um, you know, one of the one of the meanings of Bodhi, and and of the English translation that we use, enlightenment, re, re, means to illuminate, to remove the darkness, and and so I I like to think of Buddha as sort of uh, you know a torchbearer, that he is lighting the path for us, and also sort of the light at the end of the tunnel, is another kind of image that I find evocative for the spiritual practice. And so Buddha is, uh, is kind of the light at the end of the tunnel, the, the beacon, the, the pole star that we can orient our navigation around. So we can go for refuge to Buddha in that sense that it's, that it's a reliable marker, that it's a trust, that it's a trustworthy, it's a trustworthy you know, signpost to orient our, our own practice, our own spiritual life around. And then we, we also go for refuge to the inner form, the inner meaning of the Buddha, um, which is um, this kind of cosmic or metaphysical Buddha. This is what we're, this is more of the Prajnaparamita approach that that Buddha's not just that Buddha's not a historical person per se, but that Buddha is this this potential of consciousness, like the the very fact that we are possessors of consciousness, that we have experiences, means that we have this innate capacity to have a fundamentally different kind of consciousness in which we are not 
um, subjected to suffering. We're not subjected to ignorance and misunderstanding where we can stop making the errors of, of creating the causes of misery in our own lives and that we can live in this, in this profoundly peaceful, awakened mode. Um, and it's, I think from a dualistic state, it's nearly impossible to imagine what consciousness would be like to, to function in a, in a state of non-duality consistently and sustainably. But um, nevertheless, we take that as this, as this marker. We go for refuge to Buddha in the sense that we, we have the capacity to have a transformed kind of consciousness. Um, in the words of the, in the language of the Heart Sutra, that we, we have a consciousness that can be dwelling in emptiness, um, able to see directly phenomena in, without the self-nature that, that they seem to have that we're imposing upon them. We go for refuge to the Dharma. And the, the, the outer form of the Dharma are the teachings, the sutras, the texts, the oral traditions, the lineages, um, that we go for refuge to them in the sense that the, that people have preserved the, the methodology, that Buddha's discovery wasn't lost to history. Which in, in the um, sutras, the early sutras, there was a moment where it looked like the Dharma, that Buddha's discovery was going to be lost because he felt that it was too profound that people wouldn't be able to understand his discovery. And he almost decided to not teach it, to simply, you know, live in this transformed state, but not make an effort to pass it along. But um, he changed his mind. He was persuaded to change his mind. And so the lineage of the Dharma initiate, was initiated and started. Um, the wheel of the Dharma was set in motion, as the as an is an evocative phrase from from the sutras. And Buddha's first teaching is called um, setting the wheel of Dharma in motion. And so that wheel continues to to roll down through history to us today, and we can take refuge in that, knowing that we we have this preserved corpus of of um, techniques and experiments that we can try. Um, also that the, the, that there's something we can do our, about our state. We're not trapped in samsara. We're not trapped in suffering. That there are techniques that we can apply. And wherever we are, there's some, wherever we are is a place that we can begin. And the inner form of the Dharma is the, the truth that the teachings and the techniques and the experiments and the meditations are guiding us towards, which is this transformed state of consciousness. The ability, the, you know, it, it is the lack of self-nature to phenomena, the lack of self-nature of our own self. And that we can experience that, we can revel in that, we can achieve it or, or discover it for ourselves. So when we go for refuge to the Dharma, it's that there's a truth to work towards, that, there, that, that there's a capital T truth that can be discovered, that we each can discover. And then we go for refuge to the Sangha, 
And the outer form of the Sangha is the it, Sangha means community. And the the outer form of the Sangha is um, our friends and our colleagues, our spiritual friends, um, our, our spiritual teachers, people who are helping us along the path. Um, the Sangha also goes through history, all of um, the people who have preserved the oral t- traditions, the people who have replicated this discovery of the Buddhas and um, developed their own approaches, their own commentaries on Buddha's teaching, their own philosophical texts, their own branches of Buddhist philosophy that provide new innovations and new ways to approach the Buddhist um, experiment, the Buddhist exercise of working towards enlightenment ourselves. And the, the, um, the inner form of the, of the Sangha is that um, when we go for refuge is that Buddha is not the only one to have achieved this type of realization. That there's not just one Buddha. Siddhartha Gautama was an outlier somehow, and he did this radical crazy thing, and nobody else has been able to do it since. On the contrary, generation after generation of people have put these teachings into practice and, and made progress and has produced many awakened awakened people. And so we, we can go for refuge to the Sangha in the sense that... Um, the results are replicable, and we have we have evidence of that from the the lineages of spiritual teachers and the hagiographies that we can read about there, about many different people's awakening and and how all of the different ways that they approached it. <clears throat> the next step is to uh, set our motivation, which in th- this is a. Uh, a characteristic of Mahayana Buddhism, which is to recall that we're not that it's it's insufficient to simply end suffering. That um, even though Buddha, in his life, most of his most of his teachings or a large corpus of his teachings were oriented towards um, identifying and uprooting suffering, and that that ending suffering is itself a a worthwhile goal. But in Mahayana Buddhism, we take it a step further and say that we actually have to work towards the ending of suffering for others as well. That um, ending our own suffering is necessary, but not complete. It's, it's, um, Mahayana Buddhism would make a distinction between Nirvana and Anuttara Samyaksambodhi, unsurpassed complete enlightenment. Um, and so the, the Anuttara Samyak Sambodhi is the result of working towards ending suffering for others as well as our, our, ourselves. That if we, if we were able to reach nirvana, that we would look out upon a world and see other beings suffering, suffering and we would realize that nirvana wasn't sufficient and that there was still more, more work to do. And uh, in Mahayana Buddhism, we set that as our goal from the outset, that we're working towards the liberation from suffering of all, of all beings. And because we set that as our motivation from the, out, uh, from the outset, um, it makes our practice more powerful and faster, more potent. So that's how... Um, 
that's how Mahayana Buddhism would set the goal and set the, the practice. And so we set our motivation from the beginning. And that's called bodhicitta. And um, uh, a being who has bodhicitta is called a bodhisattva. And we're familiar with that because here in the Heart Sutra, our main character, one of our main characters, is um, Avalokiteshvara. And Avalokiteshvara is a great bodhisattva, um, one of Buddha's chief disciples. And um, Avalokiteshvara is a, a bodhisattva whose specialty or his main practice his or her main practice was compassion. And at the, so at the beginning of the, the Heart Sutra, um, which is, uh, just to remind you, is um, called the Heart of the Perfection of Wisdom Sutra. And so perfection of wisdom is this transcendent wisdom that Buddha has achieved. And the heart of it is to indicate that we are looking at only the most condensed, pithy instruction on how to realize the perfection of wisdom. And um, so Avalokiteshvara is someone who has already realized the perfection of wisdom and in fact is dwelling in the perfection of wisdom. The text describes it as practicing the practice of the perfection of wisdom. So there, it, the, the text emphasizes that this is a, a process and that Avalokiteshvara is in this process. And from within this meditative stillness, this transcendent wisdom, Avalokiteshvara looks out upon the world. And um, it's a, an interesting characteristic is that Avalokiteshvara, in the, according to the Heart Sutra, looks out upon the world and doesn't see people in suffering what Avalokiteshvara sees from the perspective of Prajnaparamita is heaps of functions, categories of perception, categories of feeling and thought and form that are themselves empty of self-nature. So even when we're talking about compassion, even when we're talking about Avalokiteshvara, whose name means euphemistically one who hears the cries of the world, um, even, even this intense compassion of hearing the cries of the world from within Prajnaparamita, within the perfection of wisdom, within this transcendent, within this transcendent state of, of stillness and non-duality, that beings look like sort of amalgams of functions that are all sort of enmeshed and interacting and overlapping. So when at the beginning of the text, when it says that Avalokiteshvara looks out upon the world, looks down upon the world, so to say, and, and sees all of these, these heaps, these skandhas, these collections of functions, and sees that these functions are all empty, we're, we're being told right at the outset that, that things are not as they appear to us. And from the perspective of a bodhisattva um, practicing the practice of the perfection of wisdom, they don't even see beings per se. They don't see people. They see a web of interrelationships. That, that, and there's no self-nature to be found in any of it. 
And Avalokiteshvara then explains this to our other main character, Shariputra. Um, Shariputra is a, an advanced spiritual practitioner, another one of Buddha's chief disciples, and Shariputra asks, the, asks Avalokiteshvara, how does one practice the perfection of wisdom? And the rest of this text is how Avalokiteshvara answers that. And the first thing that, he, that Avalokiteshvara says to Shariputra is that is that all of these things, all of the skandhas, all of these functions are empty of self-nature. So he describes the, the, the heaps, the skandhas, um, and he says that the, the skandhas uh, are empty, are emptiness, and emptiness is the skandhas. The, the skandhas are not other than emptiness, and emptiness is not other than the skandhas. Wherever we see the skandhas, that is emptiness, and whatever is emptiness, that is the skandhas. All phenomena have the characteristic mark of emptiness. All phenomena are not produced, are not destroyed, are not impure, and are not pure. They are not deficient, and they are not complete. <clears throat> and he says that this is all of the aspects of our body, all, the, all, all aspects of the physical world, all aspects of our mind. He says this is all sense objects, objects of touch, objects of taste, smell, sounds, things, visible objects, our mind itself. Our sense organs, our capacity for sensing, also has this characteristic mark of emptiness. And he, he then goes on to, to describe um, Buddhist causation. And this is what we got started with. This is what we got into at the end of class last week, the 12 links of dependent origination. Um, the, the 12 links are how early Buddhism describes the process of how the world comes into being. And this is... Um, where that you can find the image on the link that I gave earlier. Did I give you the link? Okay. Um, um, this has the, the image that I gave you has that in English. Um, and we're working, and so we, we'll stick with the English. We have the Sanskrit as well, but we went into that in more detail in the last class. So we can just stick with the the um, the English translation for for now. So the underlying characteristic for all of causation is ignorance. Ignorance is what produces volitions, and um, in this uh, in this image it says karmic formations. So this means like the latent impressions that are driving our consciousness forward. Um, volition in in Sanskrit, the Sanskrit word samskara, um, it doesn't. We ha in in English when we hear volition, it has this kind of meaning of will. Like what we're will we, when we have volition, it's because I set my sights on something and I go for it. Um, but volition in Sanskrit, as I mean in in Buddhism as a technical term, volition is this subtle precognitive impulse to exist. So volition would then also be like in in um, yogacara buddhism they talk about the storehouse of karma 
they describe karma in, as as like this backlog of all of the karmic seeds that have been planted over countless lifetimes from time with no beginning. We've been in this cycle creating this massive backlog of karma. And that massive backlog of karma is what's is what's driving the whole process forward. Um, so seeds are constantly ripening. Karmic seeds are constantly ripening, and the, and the the volition is the latent potential for all of the seeds to for for karmic seeds to be ripening. So volition is sort of this like urge to exist, this intensity that that pushes us to be. So volition, karmic formations, is the the pre, the um, pre, predisposition or the tendency or the underlying cause that drives consciousness itself. So consciousness is is here the the capacity to experience, the capacity to think. There's no thoughts yet. We're just talking about the principle, the the principle of consciousness that that samskara volition drives consciousness consciousness drives the next one name and form that's the the tendency to reify things the tendency to thingify things this is what what the heart sutra is calling the svabhava the the self nature that things are empty of that's wanting to thingify wanting to identify objects including our own body and our own mind, including to create, you know, to identify our own self as objects. This is the, the this is even before names and forms are even necessarily um, being applied to things. This is just the tendency to think, the tendency to reify, the tendency to thingify. And that tendency is what drives the, the fifth link, which is the six sense spheres. Um, or six senses, as it's said on the, on the image. Um, now, the six senses includes the objects of sense as well as the senses. So the six sense is not just the perceptual quality, but it's also the objects that we're perceiving. The Heart Sutra goes through and lists all of these, right? It talks about the sense organs, it talks about the sense objects, and it talks about the sense consciousnesses. According to this model, there are no sense objects independent of sense consciousnesses. There are no things that we're perceiving until and unless we're perceiving the things. And similarly, there's no, per there's no perception unless there's a perception of something. And then the third ingredient is the consciousness that's capable of perceiving things. So that process, the senses, the process of sensing is being driven by the tendency to reify things. So the, the urge to exist leads to consciousness. Consciousness leads to uh, the need to identify objects, subjects and objects. The tendency, the need to identify subjects and objects is what produces the sense objects and the senses. So sense of the, per, the process of perception and all of the objects of perception are coming from the urgency to reify according to the 12 links of dependent origination or the 12 links of interdependence. And that's what produces all of these subsequent things that we identify. Contact, 
which is the moment that we engage an object, the moment that the object actually comes to us. Or we go to the object is what it feels like to us, right? We think that we're like wandering around in the world, bumping into objects. But according to this model, we're kind of the center point and all the objects are are emerging in conjunction with our sense perceptions and our sense consciousnesses in this continual process of emergence that's driven by the tendency to reify, to need to see yourself as self and other and other as other. So that's what is this driving the ongoing contact. Contact produces feeling, which is the immediate response to the to the contact. Feeling is either I'm attracted to this thing or I'm repulsed by this thing. I want to get closer to it, I want more of it, or this is dangerous or painful and I want to get away from it. Or neutral, right? We experience neutral feelings about lots of things. Um, things that we more or less are just not registering, right? Like the color of the wall behind me is neutral. Like it doesn't really invoke anything whatsoever. Whereas if the color of the wall was vermilion or teal, then you might have a a different reaction to a, a a vibrant color. So those are all feeling when you walk into a room that's painted a bright color and you're just like, oh, either you like like it and you want to go in or, oh, you don't want to go in. Just that that momentary impulse, that that reaction is feeling. Feeling is what drives craving. Craving is either you are, are moving towards the thing or moving away from the thing. So first there's the impulse. You see how this is like breaking down this process into these micro moments, these sub these like subsections of experience. So feeling is the immediate sen- the, the contact with something and then the immediate attraction or repulsion or neutrality. Craving is when we actually feel the urgency to move towards it or away from it. And then grasping or clinging is when we are attached to the thing as being able to give us the satisfaction that we want, or if we get rid of it, then we're free of the suffering that it's causing. So we're all we're many steps ahead now of just identifying something as an object that's separate from us. And we have moved through all of these micro moments. And this is all happening, I mean, uh, according to like the Abhidharma model, this is happening dozens of times every instant, every instant. This is happening dozens and dozens of times in every finger snap. So grasping is the point at which we say, ah, yes, if I actually acquire the thing, then it will be the thing that I'm looking for. Or if I get away from this thing, then I will be free of the suffering that it's causing me. Grasping is then what drives the need to exist. So you can see how this is a cycle. So becoming then is what drives birth which if we, there's a few different ways of taking this right like if you look at the at the image it has past present and future in the middle and it has cause and effect and cause and effect so these are examples of how this can drive causation past present and future is 
what's what is the urgency that's pushing us into the present moment how we're responding to the present moment and then birth old age and death are what is driving us into the next loop in the cycle we can look at this as an example of what happens over a lifetime some some interpretations of of uh, the 12 links of dependent origination is is describing what leads up to birth meaning literally being born as a human being and then old age and death is the whole rest of your life there's this impulse to exist which which is driven by the first 10 links there's the actual existence and then decay and then from the moment that we're born we're basically getting older and and heading towards death but i prefer to think about this as this whole process is happening continually we're constantly being driven by ignorance. We're constantly being driven by karmic formations. That's what's driving our ongoing experience of consciousness, seeing subjects and objects, um, experiencing the sensory world that we're in, con constantly coming into contact with objects, having feelings about our contact with the objects. This is all happening constantly. So the, the Heart Sutra also then says that um, it says there is no ignorance or destruction of ignorance up to and including no old age and death and destruction of no of old age and death now that second part is interesting because one of the things that um, Buddhism teaches us about the 12 links of, of dependent origination is that we can interrupt this process and that's one of the ways that we can stop the flow of karma, the flow of causation that we're being subjected to, and move towards nirvana. If we can stop the if if we stop the ignorance, then we stop the karmic formations. We stop the karmic formations. We stop the consciousness, etc. And so, in theory, interrupting this process of the twelve links of dependent origination will stop the entire flow of rebirth. So one of the things that the Heart Sutra is doing here is it's telling us that the 12 links don't exist, but it's also telling us that interrupting the 12 links doesn't exist. Um, this, is, uh, this is provocative because it's one of the ways that the Heart Sutra kind of attacks other Buddhist ideas and um, challenges the things that we are being that we have been led to believe i'm talking about us philosophically that we've been led to believe that these are the processes through which we can achieve nirvana and the heart sutra is telling us that these are um that these are false ideas so moving on to the next verse or the next line rather the the heart sutra then says um, Naduka Samudaya Niroda Margaha. Um, if you're following the text, that's the line that we're on. Um, now it's going even. It's going even deeper into um, Buddhist philosophy, because these four are the very first teaching that Buddha gave. This is the four Arya truths, or the four noble truths. Um, the, the four noble truths are the 
the basis and the foundation of all other Buddhist teachings. And some, and even though there's a proliferation of different Buddhist philosophies, um, one of the markers for Buddhist philosophy, Buddhist teaching, is does it relate to the Four Noble Truths or does it not relate to the Four Noble Truths? And if it relates to the Four Noble Truths, then that's a marker, a characteristic that it is a Buddhist teaching. Um, the, the Four Noble Truths are, well, Um, first of all, they're called the four Arya truths. The Sanskrit word is Arya. And the, the word Arya is usually translated as noble or noble one, as in nobility. And that carries this kind of connotation of, um, of sort of aristocracy or, you know, it, it has this idea of kind of an exalted kind of person. But an Arya is referring to something specific in Buddhism. As with a lot of these things, we, we, we're translating it into English and we're working with this English translation, but we're talking about technical terms that have um, quite a bit of embodied meaning in them within Buddhism. And so the, the, the truths of the, the Aryas, the, the Aryas are um, awakened beings. So when it's the Four Noble Truths, it's really more like the 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 four realizations of a Buddha. Um, this is one of the ways that we could encapsulate Buddha's big discovery, that these four things um, tell us everything we need to know about Buddha's discovery, and as a result, there there are something that we need to work towards to. Um, work towards a Buddha's enlightenment, um, but it's also a marker of success in practice is the, the depth to which these four truths seem clear and self-evident. Um, these sort of transitions called realizations, where we go from having an idea about something to having a, a visceral experience of it as true. Um, also, the word, the, the word truth I think of them, I think it f like maybe fact is a better word because they're, these are not subjective truths according to Buddhism. These are not, um, <clears throat> they're not, um, I don't know, how would you put it? They're not really, they're not, they're not true versus like true and false. They're true in the sense that they are like real they're 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 like natural laws so when i think of i mean like you know the, the reason i'm struggling with words right now is because we have a lot of problems with truth and facts in our modern society if you've noticed where we have things like alternative facts and um and where truth is something that is subjective and some people think that you know, science is producing valid truths about our world, and other people think that science is not producing valid truths about our world, and then we don't even agree on what we mean when we say truth. But I think also that there's another, there's another definition of the word true, which is like, um, like the tr true in the sense that a compass can be true. It's true in the sense that it's, it's, it's pointing in the right direction.
it's um or or I think they use this in in building right where um when you're trying to get like timbers aligned properly then the the um when they're when they're aligned properly they're true they're true and I think of this like four noble truths four aria truths as having that definition of truth as well <clears throat> like we have a compass and if the compass is working properly the comp we can trust the compass it's true in that sense and so it's not necessarily like another way of looking at th at this is that they're not true in the sense that they're facts but they're true in the sense that they're accurate they're true in the sense that they are that we can trust them and that we can follow them so these four truths um, the first is the truth of suffering, the truth of dukkha. So the four truths in Sanskrit are dukkha, samudaya, niroda, and margaha. Um, dukkha, as um, if you've been around Buddhist or yoga texts much, you will be familiar with this word dukkha. And dukkha means suffering, generally. Um, I've also seen it translated as stress which um, I think is an interesting kind of alternate translation. Um, when we think of dukkha as suffering, it sounds like it, like it could be something really gruesome, you know? But um, if we think of suffering as stress, it's like we're never at ease. We're never, things are not always just going smoothly. That... Um, that we're always under pressure, that there are things outside of our control that impinge upon us that um, prevent us from being peaceful and at ease and still. Um, the word dukkha um, really um, in Sanskrit also is a, the word that's used to describe um, when a wheel on a cart doesn't fit properly on its axle. And so... I think of it as kind of an automatopoeia, right? Dukkha sounds like if you're riding in a car where one of the wheels is kind of like off kilter or something like that. Dukkha, 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 dukkha. You're like bumping down the road as you go. Um, so I think of dukkha as also like it's a rough ride. You know, we're like on a dirt road with a broken, with like a damaged wheel and like we're making progress, but it's not a comfortable ride. Um, but usually when we talk about, in Buddhism, what they'll use the word suffering. And so, you know, this is one of the things that Buddhism is kind of, one of the things that Buddhism is kind of famous for is saying life is suffering, you know? And that's the first of the Four Noble Truths. But there's a lot more to it than that. It's that um, we're, we're sort of, our suffering is habitual, it's not that we're being it's not that we're suffering because it's being like imposed upon us by some external force. It's that we are um we have a habit of suffering. We have a habit of having a rough ride. And it doesn't feel that way, but that's why Buddhism is trying to draw our attention. That's what it's trying to point to. It's saying you know one of the one of the metaphors for um for suffering that buddha used in one of the old scriptures is um the two dart the two dart problem and buddha says that like <clears throat> you know your karma ripens and bad stuff happens to you and it's like getting shot with an arrow 
and getting shot with an arrow sucks. You're already you're in pain. It's it's really bad. But he says getting upset about it is like stabbing ourselves with a second arrow. And we don't have control over the first arrow, but we do have control over the second arrow. And so this is one of the ways that Buddhism is trying to draw our attention to suffering. And that's the second of the, the, the four Arya truths, samudaya. Um, samudaya means um, producing or cause, and, it, and it's implying suffering, that, that suffering isn't something that's outside of our control. Um, it seems like it is because it seems like it has a svabhava, and that's what Heart Sutra is really getting at. Um, the, the, that suffering is caused <clears throat> means that it's, um, it's not random. It's not happening because of things outside of our control. There's a cause, and, in, um, and the cause is um, craving. So really, you know, you could say that the second suffering, the second truth is that suffering is caused, but you could even, you could get to it, even put a finer point on it by saying suffering is caused by our craving. Wanting things to be a certain way, wanting things to be different than they are. That's the second dart and the second arrow. And we keep sticking ourselves with the arrow saying, I don't want it to be like this. And then we poke ourselves with the arrow, making it even worse. So this is the second of the Four Noble Truths is that that suffering, suffering has a cause. And this is actually hopeful. This is good news because it means the, the, third, the third Noble Truth is that there's an alternative Niroda. Um, Niroda means it can be stopped. There's a cessation. There's, um, there's a way to end suffering. And now we've got really good news because, you know, here's where, where it's like, you know, sign me up because, okay, there's suffering. That's a bummer. Suffering is caused. Well, okay, thanks. There's, a, there's an alternative to suffering. Suffering can be end. Niroda, cessation. The end of suffering is possible. Okay, now I'm interested. Um, and so the, the third of the, the, the noble truths is, is that of nirvana, right? The cessation of suffering is nirvana. This experience of, of no more suffering. And then the fourth of the Arya truths is margaha, which means path or road. And that me and what that means is that there is a, there's a technique, there's stuff you can do, there's a path to the end of suffering. So, the first noble truth, the first Arya truth, is that there's suffering. There's this pervasive suffering, stress, discomfort, dis-ease, rough road, flat tire kind of situation that we're in. That it's there's a cause for the suffering. The, which is that we want things to be different than they are. That the, that the suffering can be ended, that there's a way to exist in peace and, and a basic kind of joy, and that there's a path, there's a technique that we can put into practice. So this is, um, you know, one of the things about, this is why we're doing this Decoding the Heart Sutra class, is that the Heart Sutra 
is based on this assumption that you're well versed in all of these ideas because it just mentions all of these things in passing with this assumption that you're well versed in all of these philosophical ideas and and these other these Buddhist principles so that we can go after them with shunyata with emptiness so it's worth mentioning um, it's worth breaking in breaking down what these things that it's talking about are so the, the, the fourth um, of the four Arya truths itself, we're not going to go into a lot of detail with these, but um, you've probably heard of the Eightfold Path, also called the Noble Eightfold Path. It's that same word, the Arya, the, the, the path of the noble ones, the path of the Aryas, the path of the awakened ones. <clears throat> so the fourth of the four noble truths, the path, is the Eightfold Path, which is um, one of the early articulations of everything that you would need to know to practice Buddhist methodology, Buddhist philosophy. So um, just for the sake of thoroughness, um, I would like to read you the verse in which the Four Noble Truths are introduced. Um, I find this interesting because you know, especially when we're in these kind of later philosophical schools of Buddhism, like Madhyamaka and the Tibetan schools and Yogacara and things like this, um, it's built on these earlier ideas and sort of takes them for granted. But if we're in these kind of Mahayana and Vajrayana schools, we don't necessarily go back and read the original sutras in and to look at the origin of these ideas, look at the the um, what the what the earliest texts actually say. So um, I thought it would be fun as an exercise, since we've got the Four Noble Truths in the Heart Sutra, in the Prajnaparamita text, I thought it would be interesting to look at the verse where the Four Arya Truths are, are initially introduced. This is from a text, this is from the Pali Canon. So um, it, the earliest Buddhist texts only exist in Pali, which is a Prakrit dialect. So Sanskrit is... Uh, Sanskrit is a Prakrit language. It's a very formalized Prakrit language. But the earliest Buddhist texts um, seem to only exist in Pali, which is a more kind of colloquial um, version of uh, a, ver a more colloquial Prakrit dialect. So in Pali, the name of the text is the Dhamma Chaka Pavatana Sutta. In Sanskrit, that's Dharma Chakra Pravartana Sutra. Um, and in English, that means setting the wheel of Dharma in motion. So we have um, Pravartana, which means to set in motion. Chakra, which means wheel. It's the same word if you heard the yoga idea of chakras like energy centers. It's the same word. And, and it literally means wheel in Sanskrit. And Dharma, which is one we've talked about a lot, which is the, in this case, in this context, Dharma means Buddha's teachings. So we're setting the wheel of the Dharma in motion. And that's the name of the text. Okay, I'm going to read this verse. Now this mendicants is the noble truth of suffering. Birth is suffering. Aging is suffering. Death is suffering. Sorrow, lamentation, pain, distress, and despair are suffering. Association with the unbeloved is suffering. Separation from the loved is suffering. 
not getting what is wanted is suffering. And this, mendicants, is the noble truth of the origination of suffering. Second, the craving that makes for further becoming, accompanied by passion and delight, relishing now here and now there, that is, craving for sensual pleasure, craving for becoming, craving for non-becoming. And this, monks, is the third or mendicants. This mendicants is the noble truth of the cessation of suffering, the remainderless fading and cessation, renunciation, relinquishment, release, and letting go of that very craving. And this mendicants is the noble truth of the way of the practice leading to the cessation of suffering, precisely this noble eightfold path, right view, right resolve, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. So that one verse has a lot, tells us a lot about what we need to know about Buddhism. Um, he has a, in that one verse, he describes what he means by suffering. He describes what causes suffering. He describes the, um, what the alternative is, this relinquishment of craving. And then he also at least introduces this eightfold path, right view, right resolve, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. And I'm not going to go into the, all of the eightfold path, but it's, um, um, but it's good to uh, at least be familiar with those ideas because they're quite common in Theravada Buddhism, but we don't really spend as much time with them in Mahayana Buddhism. And... Um, you know, I spent a lot of years studying Mahayana Buddhism, and I'd heard about the Eightfold Path, but I hadn't really gotten into it. And then I started hanging out with um, other schools of Buddhism, and and they said, "Oh yeah, really? The Eightfold the Eightfold Path is the whole is the whole picture." Um, in Tibetan Buddhism, we have the Lam Rim, and that's sort of our framework that we orient around the steps of the path, um, developed by largely by um, Jetsun Kappa, but. Even that is sort of a reframing of the Noble Eightfold Path. So the, the Eightfold Path has everything you would need to practice Buddhism effectively. And that's, you know, that's part of what's interesting about Buddhism is there's all of these different philosophical systems, all of these different approaches, different ways of approaching the problem and the solution. But we're in a Prajnaparamita class and so the Prajnaparamita isn't just telling us about the, noble, the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Noble Path. On the contrary, the Prajnaparamita texts are saying there is no suffering. There is no cause of suffering. There is no cessation of suffering. And there is no path to the cessation of suffering. So the Prajnaparamita, again, is drawing us back to this idea to not get attached to the Buddhist teachings that the, the, the goal, the process, the end result of the Buddhist teachings is to not hold on to these concepts, to not get attached to the very things that are being presented to us as the, the path to freedom. That we can, that when we start to become oriented towards Buddhism, we start to shift our, our orientation. We start to change our priorities. We start to have new markers for what it means to be successful in our lives. 
um, we start orienting towards noticing, like in the Four Noble Truths, we're noticing that suffering is happening. Instead of just being buffered about by suffering, buffered about by life experiences, we start to notice the markers. We start to notice those things. And by paying attention to that, we can make better choices, right? That's the, the second of the Noble Truths. We can start looking at how is the suffering caused? How can I crave less? How can I have less aversion? You know, how can I react less strongly to the things that I find unpleasant or, or discomforting? Um, how can I develop patience so that I don't lose my temper when I'm, when I'm being provoked? And we start noticing these things. We start to set, set new priorities. And that's based on knowing that it's possible to reduce and ultimately eliminate suffering, according to Buddhism. And we have these techniques that we can put into practice, the Eightfold Path. But the Heart Sutra is reminding us that all of those things are, that getting attached to, the, to those things is recreating the causes of suffering, just like getting attached to, you know, having nice things and getting new stuff and, shop, you know, shopping on Etsy, which is my habit lately. Um, so, like, I, you know, I can see how shopping on Etsy is, like, making me obsessed, but I can just as easily get obsessed with Buddhist philosophy and say, okay, I'm not gonna, I'm, like, shopping on Etsy is, um, you know, craving, and I know that craving is the cause of suffering, but I can just as easily get attached to Buddhist philosophy as these ways of getting out of suffering and then getting attached to that is doing the exact same thing except with philosophy instead of with, you know, cool stuff on Etsy. Um, so that's a big part of what the Heart Sutra is, is helping us do. Get unattached to these things. Um, even the things that help us will harm us if we get attached to them. Uh, there's, a, there's a metaphor... Um, that's used quite a lot, especially in, in um, Chinese Buddhism of the of the raft. Um, one of the, this is this is kind of cool because the word paramita, right, which which means perfection, as in perfection of wisdom, prajna paramita. The word paramita actually means crossing to the other shore, and so in a, in Sanskrit, it literally means like crossing a river, fording a river, and arriving at the other side. So when we're using the word perfection, it's a euphemistic usage, even within Sanskrit, where getting to the other shore, getting to the other side, means euphemistically perfection, to accomplish something, to, to um, finish it off, to finish the project. So the perfection of wisdom is like, cr cr is like completing the project of wisdom, cr and, it, and literally meaning to like get across a river. So... Um, you, there's sort of a, a way of unpacking this idea is that to get across the river, you need to build a raft. And so that's what we're doing with Buddhist philosophy. We're, we're getting the timbers and we're lashing them together with, with the Eightfold Path, the four, the four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path and all of these philosophical ideas, decon, you know, having these ways of thinking about how to change our orientation so that we can end suffering. We build our raft and we ford across the river. We put these things into practice. We have to navigate the rough waters. 
and then eventually we'll achieve prajnaparamita, we'll get to the other shore. But then one of our mistakes is then to take the raft with us, like it can still help us once we're on the other, on the other side. And now we've gotten to the other shore, or we think we've gotten to the other shore, but we're dragging this raft with us that we don't need anymore. So that's one of the, that's a metaphor, that's a, an image, an evocative image for Prajnaparamita. We need the raft, but we only need the, we, we need the raft, we need Buddhist philosophy, we need Buddhist practice, but it is itself provisional. We don't need Buddhist philosophy because it's val- valuable in and of itself. It's valuable because it helps us get across. It helps us achieve this goal. It helps us have these realizations. And once we have the realizations, the philosophy isn't, it, it becomes a dead weight that we're dragging around. So, you know, I'm not, I'm not there yet. I depend on the raft. I depend on the, the scaffolding to help me navigate life. But Heart Sutra is helping remind us, it's helping point to this situation that we could find ourselves in, which is getting attached to the raft, getting attached to the philosophy, becoming really good scholars of philosophy without actually using the philosophy to end suffering. That's another risk for those of us who are kind of nerds, right? Kind of, kind of uh, philosophy geeks. We like get really excited about the philosophy and we get really proud of ourselves for how well we can recount the, all of the lists and all of the Buddhist stuff. But then by being proud of our, our uh, facility with philosophical ideas, we're actually moving in the wrong direction from what the philosophy is trying to lead us to, which is how to live a better life and how to live an unencumbered life, right? Suffering is caused by craving. Suffering is caused by like wanting more stuff. And that's just as true with philosophy and, and Buddhist, you know, the stacks of Buddhist books that, and, that many of us have in our homes, you know. Like that becomes, that's the raft that we're dragging around with us. We need the raft to get across, but we can't be so attached to the raft that we're trying to drag it with us when it's already served its purpose. Okay, so we're almost at the end of this section. Um, this, this section is where um, Avalokiteshvara is going through all of these phenomena that are that were previously taken um, by Buddhists as uh, sacrosanct. So up until this point, everything, I mean, up until this point in the development of Buddhist philosophy, these ideas were being presented as here's how you think and practice as a Buddhist. And the Heart Sutra is now coming in and, and applying this, this philosophy, this rhetoric of negation to all of these things and saying, well, there's, that um, the cessa- it's one thing to say that there's the cessation of suffering, but Prajnaparamita is saying that there's this transcendent wisdom aspect. And um, the, the Pali Canon doesn't really go into a lot of detail with this, but it does go into some detail. Um, and, uh, and so this is like where the Heart Sutra's sort of radical rhetoric is um, going, you know, challenging all of these Buddhist ideas. So this is the the section where in in English it says, um, in emptiness there is no form, no feeling, no perception, no impulse, consciousness, no eye, no ear, no nose, no tongue, body, or mind, 
No forms, no sounds, no smells, no tastes, touchables, or objects of mind. No sight, organ, element. This is the sense consciousness, the capacity for sight. No sight, organ, element, and so forth until we come to no mind consciousness element. There is no ignorance, no extinction of ignorance, and so forth until we come to there is no decay and death, no extinction of decay and death. That's the 12 links of dependent origination. There is no suffering, no um, cause of suffering, no cessation, and no path. That's the verse we just did, the Four Noble Truths. There is no cognition, no attainment, and no non-attainment. So that one short paragraph, I'm reading uh, Kanze. Uh, he, I find his translation a little rough, but he, he's, uh, he, you know, the nice thing about this book is that it has the Sanskrit in it, so you can refer to both the Sanskrit, and he talks about why he translated it the way he did. But this one, this one little segment right here is like a, a summary of and a summarily a negation of the whole corpus of Buddhist philosophy up until that point. So these few lines are so packed with content and with meaning. And that's the section that we've been on. And there's one last line in that, which we'll do tonight. And then um, next week, we'll um, do the conclusion and the practice of Prajnaparamita, the section on the pra practice of Prajnaparamita. So these last, these last line, the last line of this section is Najnyanam na praptir na praptihi. So um, jnana, this is um, this this is the same word that's in prajna, jnana, the the root jnya to know. So jnana, jnana is um, knowledge, cognition, or understanding. Um, and in this section, it's specifically referring to everything that's been said up until this point. So when he's talking about jnana and saying that there is no, no, there is no knowing, there is no understanding, what he's saying, the, the knowing that he's referring to is Buddhist philosophy as a whole. So if you had been studying Buddhist philosophy under that, under that framework, you would be really focused on the Four Noble Truths, the Eightfold Path, the 12 links of dependent origination, the, the, the 18 sense, the six sense spheres, which is the 18 datus, the, the organs, the objects, and the, conscious, the consciousnesses. Those are the kinds of things that you would be really focused on studying and deeply understanding and meditating on those pro processes. And that is what would be summarily called cognition or understanding, the jnana, the jnana that you'd be focused on would be all of these things. And here at the conclusion of this section, the Heart Sutra is saying there's no, there's nothing to understand. There's nothing to hold on to. The, the, the whole philosophical system is itself provisional. And uh, th this is quite this pulling the rug out from under, from under us. Um, he says na prapti, na, na praptihi, um, and prapti is attainment. So this is, a, again, a specific thing. It refers to something specific. And if you've been studying Buddhism for a while, you might be familiar with these terms. But there's something specific that he's referring to when he talks about attainment. And these are the four stages of, of becoming an arhat. Um, and these are called the stream enterer. 
the once returner, the non-returner, and the arhat. So in early Buddhism, in Theravada Buddhism, these are the, these are the stages of realization that are leading you up to. These are the markers, the realizations, the attainments in meditation that you'd be seeking in order to move you towards nirvana. So a stream enterer is um, the stream that it's referring to that you're entering is the stream towards nirvana. Um, a, a stream enterer is someone who has had this fundamental transformation through meditation. They've developed this meditative awareness, this meditative stability, concentration. Like I've referred to before, we have the, the stages of concentration, the stages of meditation, this chart. This is a Tibetan um, rendering of the same idea. But once you, uh, once you realize a state of meditation, that there's a, a sort of absorption that happens that changes your consciousness. Um, in some, some schools of Buddhism call this the direct perception of emptiness. And this is when um, this is when you have a taste of this kind of emptiness, this taste of this non-dual awareness. It's like a taste of nirvana in the in the sort of Theravadan schools. It's a it's a transformative experience in that your identity is absorbed. Your, your identity disappears. You're absorbed in your meditation so completely, so fully that the subject-object relationship completely collapses and, and you lose yourself in, in this meditation. And then and it lasts for a period of time and then you re-emerge and, you, and your identity is intact. But you know without a doubt that enlightenment is possible, that nirvana is possible. Because this, this state of meditation changes your consciousness in a fundamental kind of way. And this is called a stream enterer because you're now, you're, you know, again, we go back to this, this raft metaphor, but instead of crossing to the other, or this, uh, this stream metaphor, but instead of crossing the stream, now you're being swept along the stream. But that's a good thing in this metaphor because when you're a stream enterer, you're, you're, being, you're being whooshed along down the river towards enlightenment. And it, what it means is that you're now, your process is irrevocable. You are, a stream enterer is someone who is moving directly towards enlightenment. And some of the texts say that there's, you've got a, a maximum of seven lifetimes or 15 lifetimes or something like that, but that you're not going to, most importantly, you're not going to revert. You're not going to fall back down into a lower form of birth. Because that's one of the concerns with with all of with this rebirth process is that if we're being driven by this karmic process that the twelve links is describing and our volitions and and the name and form and all of that stuff is happening, it's not part of our conscious awareness or our conscious control. That when we when we go through the old age and death and then we start the process over again, driven by ignorance, we could be reborn as any type of creature in the universe. There's no guarantees that we're going to be reborn as a human or that we're going to have the types of resources that we do as a human today because it's possible to be reborn in a, as a human, but a human who doesn't have the time or the intelligence or the resources to practice Dharma. Or you could be reborn as a human in an, in an era in which there is no Dharma and people are not um, interested in spiritual practice and you're never exposed to spiritual teachings. These are the types of risk fact, you know, the risks of dying when you're not under control of your karma. So the one of the big perks, one of the big bonuses of being a stream enterer is that there's that you're not going to have any lower rebirths. So 
this is nice because in, even if we're saying like nirvana or anuttara samyak sambodhi, these like very advanced states of spiritual awareness seem out of reach. Something that's maybe feels more accessible is that that there's there's a transformative experience that you can have in meditation, and then you can you'll have total confidence and trust that you are inexorably heading towards nirvana, that you're inexorably heading towards enlightenment. And that kind of, you you can imagine that that might take the pressure off, right? You might, there, like that could um, alleviate some of the stressors of life. If you, if you had this absolute confidence that enlightenment was possible and you, and you had this confidence in yourself that you were heading towards it without risk of, uh, of a lower rebirth, of being reborn as a cockroach or a wild animal or something like that. So... A stream enterer is like, it's like the first stage. I mean, it's not enlightenment, but it's like the first stage of enlightenment. It's like getting a taste of enlightenment, knowing for sure that it's possible. They say that one of the, um, one of the mental afflictions that's eradicated for the stream enterer is the mental affliction of doubt. So they still have anger and... Um, craving and delusion and all a variety of mental afflictions that we're all familiar with, but a stream enterer no longer experiences doubt in their spiritual life, in their spiritual practice. They have unshakable confidence that their spiritual practice is working, and they know just what they need to do to finish it off. Um, some some say that in, in that state of meditation, when you have that transformative experience, you see the Buddha that you will eventually become. And you, and you know without a doubt that that's where you're heading. And you see what's happening between your current place and where you'll be to become a Buddha. And so there's no, there's no doubt in your mind anymore. And, um, and that sounds pretty appealing. That sounds like um, a hopeful state. It's not full enlightenment, but it is... Um, it's like unshakable confidence that that's happening. So the the once returner and the non returner. So the stream enterer means you have a you're you're still in the you're still going to die and you're going to go through the rebirth process and that's going to happen a number of times. This is the the more of the Theravadan school. There's different perspectives and different philosophies of Buddhism that you can see your current life is your last life and you're going to get enlightened in your life. That's more of like a Vajrayana type of perspective. But in the this is the more Theravada perspective. The stream enterer, the the once returner means you're on your second to last life. And this is a stage of attainment where where the the meditative developments, the meditative stability is such that it's very, very close to the end. Um, A non-returner, the the third of these four paths, a non-returner is someone who's in their last life. They're not going to be reborn after that. Um, this is one of the ways that Buddha talked about his own uh, his own enlightenment, you know, his own nirvana. Um, you know, it's pretty interesting that Buddha attained nirvana. Um, we, you know, the Mahayana schools would say that he attained unsurpassed enlightenment, but. Um, you know, he continued to hang around in a bodily form for 40 years and taught and then eventually died of food poisoning when he was 80 or something like that. Um, 
And throughout that entire time, he still experienced, you know, the, the, he still experienced things like physical pain and, um, you know, uh, problematic students. He had to deal with a lot of um, shenanigans with his students. Um, but he was in this imperturbable state. And, he, and one of the things that he said after his awakening was, this is my last life. I'm not going to be reborn. I finished it off. Once I die, or once this body dies, I'm not in samsara anymore. And once this body dies, I'm not re going to be reborn as a, in a physical form. So that's the kind of thing that a non-returner is. They know that they're in their last life. And then the last of these, is, of these four is called the arhat. And in Theravada Buddhism, being an arhat is the goal. Um, arhat means foe destroyer, one who's destroyed the foe of samsara, destroyed the foe of death. Um, so um, an arhat in the Theravada scriptures, in the Theravada sutras, the suttas as they call them because they're written in Pali, so they call them suttas rather than sutras. But it's the same word, it's just a different dialect. Um, an arhat is considered to have the to be on parity with a Buddha. So an arhat is one who's attained full nirvana. Nirvana is full enlightenment in the Theravada school. Um, and an arhat has attained the same nirvana as a Buddha. Um, the distinction that they make is that Buddha was the discoverer of the process. And so Buddha, because he was the, the first, um, he has a, a special title as, as the Buddha. But then all, many of his followers were arhats, or, or because of his teaching became arhats. And in the Theravada version, they're on par with the Buddha. But they don't get the special title because they were coaxed into a nirvana by a Buddha. By the Buddha. Um, but nevertheless, an arhat in, in Theravada school, the arhat is finished. They've reached nirvana. They're done. So that's even a non-returner is someone who's going to attain arhatship within their lifetime. So if you're a once return, if you're a stream enterer, presumably each of those subsequent births, you're aware that you're a stream enterer. When you're a once returner, you're so close that you know that your next life is going to be your last one. When you're a non-returner, you know that you're in your last life and that you're going to attain arhatship before you die. And an arhat is someone who's attained nirvana. So this is what is these are the attainments that's being referred to here in the text. Um, but ironically, striving for attainments is an obstacle to reaching attainments. And this is something that we're starting to get the feeling of from the. I hope that you're starting to get the feeling of this from the Prajnaparamita, the Heart Sutra which is striving for these goals is itself an obstacle to reaching these goals. Even thinking, them at, thinking of them as goals is an obstacle to reaching them as goals. Um, so um, that's why this next, the next part of this line is non-attainment. There's no attainment. The, these, these four... These four stages of an arhat are striving for these stages of an arhat 
create the obstacles that prevent you from attaining these stages. But similarly, there's also no non-attainment. So it's not that the stages don't exist, right? This is again this sort of this weird liminal space that Prajnaparamita wants us to hang out in. It's saying like there's no attainment because if you strive for the attainments, you're going to block yourself from actually having these realizations. But there's no non-attainment, meaning that there's no that the realizations don't exist. But you have to kind of function in this way where you're neither striving for the attainments nor not working towards them at all. You can't just be lazy and not doing any spiritual practice at all and just hanging out on Etsy all day. You have to be doing something. But if you're trying to do something, you're creating obstacles to having the realizations that you need to have in order to move closer to the goal. Thinking of it as a goal is an obstacle to moving closer towards the goal. And this is this is like the Prajnaparamita is trying to get us this is what all, what emptiness is all about. Emptiness is not nothingness. This is one of our, our sort of nihilistic, materialistic, or anti-materialistic philosophies of, of the West is that, well, if they're talking about voidness or emptiness, we imagine this like blankness with no, where nothing is happening. That's one of the problems with nirvana too. People think nirvana, nirvana literally means to blow out, to extinguish. Um, and so some, you know, some Western interpretation of nirvana is that nirvana means that there's nothing happening, like you extinguish your consciousness. But Buddhism would say it's, it's not, it's impossible to extinguish consciousness. Consciousness is pervasive. Um, but you're extinguishing something. Um, interestingly, also nirvana, this is, a, the, again, the non-attainment, because nirvana is not an acquisition. Nirvana is a stopping of a mistake. And I think this is part of what we, gets us a little bit closer to what, what Prajnaparamita and emptiness is pointing to, is it's not an acquisition. It's not something that we work towards. It's not something that we acquire. Like these attainments, just using that word attainment is like, <clears throat> if I accumulate enough something, then I'll become a stream enterer. And if I accumulate some more, then I'll be the attainment of a once returner, you know? Like if I get this, if I, get, if I like hoard enough gold, then I'll be the thing that I'm trying to be. That, but the attainments don't work that way. Just calling them attainments is a, is a wrong way of thinking about them. So we would say they're, we could say that they're non-attainments, but here the Heart Sutra is saying that they're not non-attainments either. But then, so we come back to nirvana. Nirvana is a stopping of a mistake. It's not, um, it's not something that we do. It's something, it's not something that we start doing right. It's something that we are currently doing wrong, and then we stop doing it wrong, and then we can see clearly. And this is what Buddhist teachings, and especially Prajnaparamita, especially emptiness teachings and, and transcendent wisdom is trying to lead us to, that there's a mistake that we're making, this pervasive mistake that we're making, and we can interrupt that mistake. <clears throat> and there's many ways of looking at what the mistake is. We, the, like the 12 links of dependent origination is a, is a great one of like micro, like micro moments of like, here's how you're, here's how ignorance is causing this whole cascade of all of these things that's doing all of this. But then if we get attached to that model, then we're like, oh, I have to interrupt between craving and clinging. 
I have to be like constantly watching for when craving turns into clinging and like get a wedge in there to stop doing that. But Prajnaparamita says trying to do that is just another form of striving. It's just another form of getting attached to things being a certain way, getting attached to our categories. So here it's negating all of this stuff because it's trying to get us to look at this, at, at this liminal space where we can hang out, where we're aware of Buddhahood, where we're aware that these attainments, with, in air quotes, these attainments are worth striving for, striving in air quotes, but also thinking of them, of them as attainments and striving for, to reach them is preventing us from making any real progress. So we have to hang out in this, like, we have to kind of float in this space where we're concentrated but not concentrated on something, where we're working but we're not working towards something, we're working to interrupt something but we don't want to get so attached to the thing that we're trying to interrupt that we get attached to the interrupting of the thing. And that's where Prajnaparamita is, that's what it's pointing to. Um, so, you know, part of Prajnaparamita is that it's using discursive wisdom to get to transcendent wisdom. So there are other, there are other forms of spiritual practice that are not the same type of wisdom-based practices, right? Like there's bhakti yoga, which is like just this open-hearted devotion. Um, there's karma yoga, which is um, orienting our our life towards acts of service, which can can trigger spiritual these kinds of activities that can trigger spiritual awakenings. Um, Prajnaparamita is for people who like to think about things, who like to wrestle with ideas. And so part of the the so part of the Prajnaparamita, part of the Heart Sutra, is that it assumes that you know a lot about Buddhist philosophy and that you're used to struggling with these ideas. And then it's trying to get you to penetrate even more deeply into this Buddhist philosophy, penetrate more deeply into these ideas, but in a way that interrupts the entire process, interrupts the process of ideation. But it's for people who, who are into this kind of like scholastic type work, who are into this kind of like working with ideas. But we're working with ideas to try to get beyond ideation, get beyond cognitive processes. So we're using our discursive wisdom, prajna, to get to this transcendent wisdom, prajna paramita. We're, we're, we're crossing over, which means we are building the raft and we are using the raft, but the purpose of the raft is only to get to the other shore and the raft is not valuable other than that. And so that's kind of the audience of the of the Heart Sutra. That's who it's speaking to. Um, one of the problems, one of the challenges with using the Heart Sutra in the in the modern day is that we're not immersed in a monastic environment. We're not living in uh, a Buddhist university where from age six years old, we spend our entire life studying philosophy and, and reading and memorizing Buddhist literature and debating with other monastics and so on. <coughs> so 
we're at a bit of a disadvantage with the Heart Sutra because it is, you know, it's coming from this place where it assumes that that's the environment that we're in. Um, so we kind of have to reconstruct the corpus of Buddhist philosophy that Heart Sutra is challenging philosophically, attacking philosophically. And so that's what we're trying to do in this class, at least get started in that process and hopefully make some, some good progress with how to use this text, both as a philosophical text, but also as a practice text, both for developing our thinking around Buddhist ideas, but also getting used to this idea that we're going to sink the raft. We're not going to keep the raft once we've done what we need to do with it. So the there's two sections left in the text, and they are, rep represent the conclusion of the text and also the practice of Prajnaparamita. The, the big kind of cash out at the end of this text is that Avalokiteshvara, after going through this philosophical discourse, um, he then says, here's how to practice the perfection of wisdom. Here's what to do. Which is a bit ironic because we've been negating everything that we think we're supposed to be doing. But he gives us a new type of practice. And that's pretty exciting. So that's what we'll be doing next week. So it's customary to conclude a Buddhist practice, Buddhist teaching. It's customary to dedicate the merit. Um, dedication is a, a, a powerful practice. And it ties directly into the um, setting our motivation of bodhicitta at the beginning. Because we are in this flow of karma, this flow of causation, we, um, we can exert some influence over how that causation is working. And, you know, there are the, there's the type of causation that we can see, that we can see and experience. But with Buddhist karma, there's also the karma of our mind. And that the karma of our mind is actually more powerful than the karma of our actions and the karma of our speech. And we can see how powerful the karma of our actions are. We can see how our actions have results. We can see how our words have results. And Buddhism says that it's what we do with our mind that's much more powerful. And dedicating the merit is one of the ways that we can use our mind to to bring bring the results that we want to see. And the way to accelerate our karma is to give it away. What we what we wish for others is more powerful than what we want for ourselves. And we can see that in a way that this is true that that what we want for ourselves is what's you know what's driving the greed the craving and delusion which is underpinned by ignorance which is the the whole problem here and we can interrupt that process by wanting good things for others we can still want things we can still want all the good things we just want other people to have them and so we 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 can use that craving we can use that that urgency to accelerate the, the process of helping others, the process of benefiting others. 
And so dedication is a way of using that where we imagine that the, that the good karma that we've generated through studying and contemplation, through our meditation practice, through our, our, our spiritual efforts, that, that these intentions, that these efforts have real power, real potency. And, and they become even more potent, more powerful when we give the results away. So dedicating merit is imagining that the, the good karma that I'm generating with my efforts can be like duplicated and expanded. And, and those karmic seeds, instead of being planted in my heart, they get planted in everybody else's heart. I want them to have the results. I wish that my, my good efforts ripen on, on other people. I'm not going to be free from suffering until I look out on a world and see everyone else free from suffering. So they, I want them to get enlightened before me. That's the kind of motivation. That's the kind of thinking that we want to have. Even if I'm the last one, I'm still going to work for their benefit because that's how I'm going to create the type of paradise, the type of world that's free from suffering, that's free from samsara that I want to see. And so that's the kind of motivation that we have with dedicating our merit. Visualizing, imagining, setting the intention that this karma ripens for for other people to be getting out of suffering, for other people to have lasting happiness and peace and joy. That's why we're doing this. <laughs>